All right. We are going to continue on through Jonah this week. We will not be finishing the book. We will be getting through chapter 3. And so, kids, listen up. We'll do a quick review of Jonah chapter 3. I mean, of Jonah. So the story of Jonah is the story of a man, the son of Amittai, whose name means truth. Jonah is... His name means dove. And so we saw at the very beginning, the very beginning chapter, Jonah is the story, the book of Jonah is the story of God sending out a dove over the waters. So we know there's judgment coming. There's death and resurrection coming. And so Jonah goes, he uh, gets the word from the Lord to go to Nineveh and cry out against Nineveh. But Jonah, a good Israelite, says, I know what that means. We'll talk more about that when we, whenever we get to the chapter 4. But he says, I know what that means. If the word of the Lord's going to another nation, that means judgment is coming to Israel. And he says, I don't want judgment to come to my people. And so he runs away. And he goes down, down, down. And he gets on the boat. And he gets on the ocean, on the sea. And God sends the storm after him. And the sailors are afraid, and they go down to the man sleeping in the boat, and they say, wake up. And he says, fine. And they say, let's uh, try and figure out what's going on here so we don't all die. And they cast lots, and the lot falls to Jonah. And they said, who are you? And he says, I am. I'm a Hebrew, and I serve the God who made the sea and the dry land. And they said, well, what do we have to do to be saved? To make God's wrath calm down. And he said, cast me into the sea. Cast me into the sea. You know what they said? We don't want to do that to you. And so they tried to row hard back to land. They tried to turn back, but they can't do it. And so finally, they pray to God. They pray to Yahweh, and they say, don't hold this man's blood against us, this innocent man's blood against us, and they throw him into the sea. And you know what happens? Calm, but not for Jonah. Jonah goes down, down, down. The seaweed wraps around his head. He goes to the bottom, and the land closes in around him, and a great fish swallows him up. And he survives in a fish, or dies in a fish, for three days and three nights. And then, in this beautiful resurrection, God tells the fish to go vomit him out onto the land. And he does. And so that's where we're picking up today in chapter 3. Jonah has been put back onto dry land. He has come from the sea, now back to dry land. Chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. 
So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city, three days journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city and going a day's journey, he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne and removed his robe and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God and let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hand. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we, so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented from the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, as we read your word today, as we open it up, would you open up our hearts and would you read us? Conform us into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. Use this word to plow us up and be good seed, bearing fruit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Jonah chapter three begins the last half of the historical drama. You can think of it as two panels. And chapter three is the last half of the drama. And it echoes the first. Jonah chapter three is a new beginning. The word of Yahweh comes to Jonah and Jonah runs to escape from the presence of Yahweh. But after he has reached the very bottom with nowhere else to run, Jonah turns back. Jonah repents. He turns, he repents of his willful disobedience, and he actually wants fellowship restored. That's what we see in chapter 2. He prays to see the temple again, to see, to be in God's presence again. He wants fellowship restored. And so now the word of Yahweh comes to Jonah a second time. He is given grace and mercy and commissioned to go again. And remember, well, he says, arise Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Remember, we've talked about it um, the previous weeks as we started the book of Jonah. There's typology woven throughout our scripture. And again, we see it in this place. And so this is the setup. Jonah makes it back to dry land after denying Yahweh his God, and he gets another opportunity to fulfill his commission and take God's word to the nations. Remember, we talked about this is not, the story of Jonah is not just a cautionary tale. Now, boys and girls, obey God. Don't run away from him. That's obvious, right? That's obvious, but it's as, it's as, uh, it's as much a cautionary tale as the cross is a cautionary tale not to crucify redeemers. Good advice, but that's not the point. That's not even close to the point. And so what we see when we look at the typology and the symbolism in the book of Jonah is it's so much more than just saying, okay, now here's what you need to do, boys and girls. What kind of a story is this? What kind of a story is God telling through this man, through his sin and through his repentance? 
Here's the, his setup. Jonah makes it back to dry land after denying Yahweh his God. He gets another opportunity to fulfill his commission and take God's word to the nations. Well, in John chapter 21, Jonah's story is beautifully echoed. Simon Peter de- decides to go fishing. This is after the crucifixion, after the resurrection. And Simon Peter decides to go fishing back to where he started. He goes out into the boat, but the effort was futile. No fish all night. But Jesus, standing on the shore, tells them to cast the net on the right side of the boat. And then according to Jesus' word, the catch was 153 large fish, and the net didn't break. When Simon Peter realizes it's Jesus on the shore talking to him, he throws himself from the boat into the sea and comes again upon dry land. And three times in this dialogue in in John chapter 21, Jesus calls Peter Simon, the son of Jonah. And he commissions him again, three times. The son of Jonah, this spiritual son of the restored rebel Jonah, had denied Christ and he had fallen in with the rest of rebellious Israel, denying their Savior. But now as he emerges from the sea back onto dry land, he is mercifully given the commission again to take the gospel to the nations. Back in Jonah 1, we've already been told that Nineveh was a great city. And here in chapter 3, it is repeated and then emphasized. Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. And the phrase in the Hebrew is, difficult. It's difficult to um, understand or kind of grasp the fullness of it. So the word for great is the one that was used 14 times already, or throughout the story, it's used 14 times, and we talked about it already. Great, 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 great. Jonah really likes to use this word great, and there's a purpose to it. But here, that word is used, but there's another word that's added to it, exceedingly great, ESV says. And the word is actually Elohim, a word that is most often translated as God in the Bible. It's exceedingly great city. In in, in the Hebrew mind, greatness is always associated with God, with Yahweh. But this phrase makes an explicit statement that's probably intended to mean that it was a great or important city to God not just a big city. It was a great and important city to God, or it was a great and important city spiritually for some reason. Jonah went to Nineveh according to the word of Yahweh to call out against it. And all of that is consistent with what we have seen in Jonah 1 verse 2. But the next thing that we are told is a bit different. Instead of saying, for their evil has come up before me, it says, call out against it. The message that I tell you. Jonah is making the point to note that God gave him a proclamation to proclaim. God gave him the preaching to preach, the way that it's kind of written. God gave the proclamation to proclaim. In verse 4, we're told what Jonah cries in Nineveh. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. One sentence. 
In terms of the message that God commissioned Jonah to preach to Nineveh, that's it. That's all we are given. That's all we are told Jonah preaches to Nineveh throughout the entire book. Remember, we talked about how Jonah is a historical book, but it's a, prof- prof- a book of prophecy. But it's unusual because this is it. This is the only prophetic message to the people that Jonah is sent to. One line. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's the message. But the author just makes the important point to say, God said, go proclaim the message that I give to you. Is it possible that Jonah said more and this was just an abrupt summary? Yes, it's possible. And some tend to judge the brevity of Jonah's message as deficient and indicative of Jonah's lack of compassion. And certainly Jonah was lacking compassion. But we use this brevity of this message, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, um, kind of as our punching bag for that. See, Jonah was lacking compassion. Look at his message. Look at what he said. And we kind of import into the text what we think the tone was, what we assume the tone was, maybe because of Jonah's attitude that we see throughout the book, right? Maybe we can assume that Jonah's tone was pretty flippant. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Maybe he mumbled it under his breath. Maybe he heralded it with wrath and anger in his voice. I don't know. You don't know. We don't know. We know what he said. In terms of the message, we don't have anything in the text that the message was itself um, wrong or less than what God told him to say. It's clear from Jonah's running away that he did lack compassion for Nineveh. God told him to go to Nineveh, and Jonah said, I don't want to go to Nineveh. He was lacking compassion for Nineveh. It's clear from Jonah sleeping the sleep of apathy in the boat in the storm that he lacked compassion for the sailors, the sailors who did not lack compassion for him. When, they, when he said, throw me over, and, and, Jonas and the sailors said, mm, let's try one more time to row back to shore. They weren't lacking compassion for Jonah, but he was lacking compassion for them. It's clear Jonah was lacking compassion. But in spite of all that, we see that Jonah's evangelistic attempt, evangelistic message, his prophetic office, mission, was effective. In this story, we do see an example of how not to do evangelism in terms of his lack of compassion, and certainly Jonah's anger at the pity of Yahweh that we see in the next chapter. However, we may also wrongly see the brevity as bad and assume that brevity is itself indicative of lacking compassion. That would be a mistake. For example, we we look at street preachers who stand on the corner proclaiming a simple message of repentance as people pass by, and, and they're really easy to criticize. They're really easy to look at and say, that's ineffectual. That's unhelpful. We may even say that's unloving. But there's nothing really in this text that would allow us to determine that Jonah's message to Nineveh was actually sinful or wrong or not what God told him to say. 
When we try and improve on Yahweh's message he has given us to preach, or we doubt his wisdom, and instead we lean on our own understanding, we are in rebellion. It's funny, we look at the story of Jonah, the story of a rebel, and we judge him at this point where we, this is probably one of the only places in the book where we shouldn't judge him. He, made it, he makes a point to say, I, Yahweh gives me the message, and he goes, and we're told what the message he says. And nothing in there tells us that he said the wrong thing or he said a different thing. God didn't come and say, hey, that's not what I told you to say. The message Yahweh gives us to proclaim to the nations is that Jesus is king eternal and he must be obeyed. And our obedience to him will mean blessing to us. Remember the gospel that God preached to Abraham in your seed all the families of the earth will be blessed. Well, wait a second. How's that good news? Where's, where's, where's the message? It's pretty brief, isn't it? There's no better day to hear and to respond to the word of God than today. But we too often tend to push off evangelism. We tend to push off the evangel, the good news. And we want to wait and let's build up a relationship with somebody or let's... Um, Make sure they like us first, and then we'll bring in the good news. But none of, none of the other things that we can do in our evangelistic attempts, other than preach the good news, is powerful to save. Nobody's going to go to heaven. Nobody's going to receive eternal life because they're friends with a Christian. Nobody's going to go to heaven. Nobody's going to receive eternal life because they think Christians are nice people. They do hospitality well. It's not going to save anybody. You know, what will save is the, the gospel will save. The good news will save. It's true. We go and we meet people where they are. We go and we meet people in their country. We go and we meet people, we, we meet people in enemy territory. But we go with our light uncovered. We go with a light that is uncovered. We go bearing the message of the gospel boldly. This is what the book of Acts is all about. Boldly proclaiming the message in, in opposition. They boldly proclaim and they ask the Holy Spirit. They ask God, give us the Holy Spirit so we may boldly proclaim that we may be bold witnesses. It's a light that is uncovered. And the point is that we must never put off obedience by canceling or altering the message. We must never put off obedience by trying to conceal the light and sneak it in. The reason that we often put off obedience is because we so desire a specific outcome, isn't it? We, we do not want to do or say anything to scare people away, to spook them. And so while it's a problem um, to think that they are, that by talking about holiness or by talking about obedience, they will be scared away or um, shy away from Jesus. Well, I don't know. The real problem is with, with that whole mindset. The real problem is not that we think they may get scared or not scared. The real problem is that salvation belongs to Yahweh, but we get it in our heads that it belongs to us. 
I need to make sure I don't say the wrong thing, scare them away. Salvation doesn't belong to you. Salvation does not belong to the agreeable sinner. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. And the key, the important thing for us to remember is we obey. We obey the one who owns salvation. Do you want to put it that way? Many of us today say Yahweh is merciful and gracious. Well, no, many of us do not say Yahweh is merciful and gracious. So we better not go and preach the good news, otherwise people might believe it. How many of us say that? No, we don't say that. We don't say, I, I better not go and preach the good news because people might get saved. That's what Jonah did. We don't do that, generally speaking, right? We don't go and say, I better not go down to the pride event in Taylor because people might actually get saved. That's not the reason why people sit that one out. Christians sit that one out. No, we don't go because um, practically we do not believe that God is merciful and gracious and will actually save sinners. That's, that's our problem. Jonah believed it, and so he said, I don't want them to be saved. I don't want to go. We don't believe it, and so we don't go. We think we can come up with a better solution, a better plan, a better way. We do the same exact thing Jonah did, but for the opposite reason. We refuse to obey Yahweh's command to go and be salt and light because we do not believe Yahweh is merciful and gracious and is sending us to bring salvation to sinners, that he is sending us with the ministry of reconciliation. That's why we are here. But we don't believe it. Jonah knew, but he lacked compassion, so he didn't go. He didn't want Nineveh to receive mercy. But thankfully for Nineveh, salvation belongs to Yahweh and not to Jonah. Thankfully for the people in our life who we conceal the light around, salvation does not belong to us. It doesn't belong to preachers. It doesn't belong to sinners. It belongs to God. And we must rein in, we must rein in whatever our emotional state may be that is keeping us afraid or gun-shy or shrinking back. We must rein that in and simply trust and obey and boldly proclaim the good news to the nations as Jesus commanded us to do. Matthew 28, he commissioned you to go in his authority to preach to the nations. And you know what he wanted you to preach to them? He wanted you to preach to them all of the things that he commanded and teach them to obey. In the garden, Jesus asked the Father if there was another way, another path of obedience. Jesus, listen, this is mind-bending, okay? But listen to this. Jesus had no emotional desire to go to the cross, to experience what he was ex going to experience. Look at the gospel accounts. He was greatly sorrowful, greatly distressed. One of the words that one of the gospels uses is, is the word for terror. He was amazed. He had no emotional desire to go to the cross. Nevertheless, Jesus desired to obey the Father. In spite of his great sorrow, in spite of his distress, Jesus submit, submitted to the will of the Father. Jesus desired to obey. In verse 4 of chapter 3, 
The word that the ESV translates as overthrown is most often translated as turn or um, sometimes it's translated as change or convert. Yahweh could have told Jonah to say a number of words that mean overthrow. There's a lot of words in the Bible that mean overthrow, destroy. But the word that the Holy Spirit put on Jonah's pen, on his mouth, was this word. This word that has these interesting possibilities for nuance. What if the message is meant to hint that this nation, not just being um, overthrown as in conquered and destroyed as it eventually was by Babylon some 70 years later, but that this nation would turn and relent. What if that's the hint given here, that this nation would turn and relent like Jonah turned and relented, like God would turn and relent from the disaster he said he would do to them. This is, this is the beautifully cunning power of the cross. This is the beautifully cunning power of the cross that the story of Jonah points us to. This Old Covenant, Old Testament story of Jonah points us to, and that is that through the death on the cross, through death on the cross, enemies can be overturned and made into friends. Next um, chapter, whenever we get to the next chapter, we'll talk more about this. Jonah is read at Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Why? One of the things that's oddly lacking from the story of Jonah is atonement. Nineveh repents, and they receive mercy. But where's the atonement? Indeed, where is the atonement? The cross, through the cross, enemies can be overturned and made friends. The atonement is at the cross. Jonah goes one day's journey and the people of Nineveh believe. One day's journey and the people of Nineveh believe. This once haughty, violent people cover themselves in sackcloth and fast from the greatest to the least. Even the animals. Even the animals. They repent at the preaching of Jonah, Jesus tells us. They repent at the preaching of Jonah. When the word of Yahweh came to Jonah to arise, Jonah arose and he disobeyed and he went down. He cast himself into the sea. He cast himself away from Yahweh. When the word of Yahweh reached the exalted king of Nineveh, what does he do? He arose, but instead of fleeing, this violent heathen king humbly moves toward Yahweh. He confesses, he repents, he believes, he obeys. Far from running away, the men of Nineveh, exposed for the sinners that they were, cast themselves on the mercy and kindness of Yahweh, the God of Israel, who is merciful and true, who has called out against their evil. The word reaches the king who is worshipped as a god and he sheds his, his robe. 
his pride, his dignity, his preeminence, and he covers himself with sackcloth and he sits in ashes. Sackcloth and ashes, of course, are symbolic of death. Sackcloth was used to mourn death. The first example we're given of sackcloth in the Bible used this way is when Jacob is mourning the presumed death of his beloved son, Joseph. He puts sackcloth upon his loins. Interestingly enough, the next time that word sackcloth is used, not just used in terms of like sackcloth that you put on to mourn, it's sack. Interestingly enough, the next time the word is used in the scripture is when that presumed good is dead son fills up the sacks of his father and his brothers with food and money and sends him back out of Egypt. The fast that was called in Nineveh is another ritualistic picture of death. They are confessing that they are as good as dead. That's what they're doing. They are confessing, we are as good as dead. It's a covering of the mouth. We are as good as dead. Far from the pervasive modern understanding of fasting, they were not trying to prove anything to God. They were not trying to say, God, look how sorry we are. God, look how humble we are. No, they were not doing that at all. They were saying to God, God, we are as good as dead. You are just, and we are as good as dead. They're embodying the fact that they know they deserve death. They know they deserve wrath and judgment, justice. But Yahweh, by Yahweh's grace, these violent heathens mourn and are contrite and sorrowful for their sin, these once blind unbelievers see and believe and repent and trust in Yahweh who is merciful and true, the God who is just and merciful in his judgment. This powerful king descends his exalted throne and he sits in the ashes. And this is another picture of death, a recognition that man is dust and will return to dust. In the Levitical system, ashes were a stark reminder of the sacrifice, of the sacrifices that were consumed by fire that took the place of the worshipers in Israel. This king sat in ashes as if he were himself a sacrifice, waiting to be burned up, consumed, This king, with all of his royal authority, humbles himself to the dust. This evil Gentile king demonstrates what the evil kings of Israel should have done at the preaching of Jonah. One day, Jonah proclaims in Nineveh, and the people repent to the king. How long did Jonah proclaim, preach in Israel? This is why Jonah didn't want to go to, Israel, to Nineveh. He is, the king issues this official proclamation and decrees that neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything or even drink water. They cover their beast with sackcloth and everyone is charged to call out mightily 
to God and turned from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Remember, severe violence was one of the hallmarks of the Assyrian Empire. It was even, um, it was even uh, extreme by their standards in ancient times, in ancient standards. It was even extreme. I won't, um, you, if you're interested in, in thinking about that extreme violence, you can look it up and there's, there are some things you can read about their violence, but they suffice it to say violence was what they took pleasure in doing, not just to other nations, but even to their own people. And so as Yahweh's word comes against them, they did not hide themselves. The king says, turn from your violence. Turn from your violence. Just like the heathen sailors who throw themselves upon the mercy of the God of the raging sea, Nineveh completely throws themselves upon the mercy of the God who sent Jonah to call out against them. To call out against them. In Jonah 3.9, the king of Nineveh says this, Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that, way, so that we may not perish. Whatever they knew of Israel already, of Israel's God, whatever they gleaned from the prophet Jonah, they knew at least two things. Number one, they knew that God's wrath is great and terrible and his fierce anger is nothing to take lightly. They did not wait till day three or day two or day four or day 39 to turn. They hear the message and they turn. Nothing to take lightly. And number two, they knew that just like Jonah did, there was a possibility that God would turn and show them mercy. Well, the king knew that mercy was a possibility. The king did not know. The king did not know what Yahweh would choose to do. Jonah did not know what Yahweh would choose to do. It wasn't possible for the king to know with certainty whether they would receive mercy or not until it was done. It was a legitimate petition to ask God for mercy. And yet impossible to know what he would actually, what he had actually determined to do. Think of David's adultery with Bathsheba. The child of that adultery God, through the prophet Nathan, said that the child would surely die, but David fasted and prayed until the child, who had been struck by Yahweh, died on the seventh day. And David's servants were afraid to tell him that the child had died. But once he figured it out, he rose, he washed, he anointed himself, he changed his clothes, and he went to the house of Yahweh to worship then he went back to his own house and he broke his fast and he ate. And the explanation he gives to his servants who were confused about his behavior is helpful insight for us. He said this, while the child was yet alive, I fasted and I wept. For I said, who can tell whether Yahweh will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall, go to, I shall go to him 
but he shall not return to me. It's important to understand that prophecy, like prayer, is meant to do something. It's meant to do something. Isaiah 55, 11 says this, So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. The word of Yahweh demands a response, and it never returns void. By the way, this is why we are not to share the gospel, but rather proclaim the gospel. We don't share the gospel. You know, if you, if you share the gospel, all it takes is a simple, no, thank you, and you're shut down. We're not sharing cookies, sugar with our neighbor. No, thank you, I don't, I don't care for a cookie right now. We don't share the gospel, we proclaim the gospel. And when we proclaim the gospel, that hearer must either believe and obey that proclamation or that hearer must reject and disobey that proclamation. No thank you is not an option. Yahweh isn't prophesying and waiting to see if his word will come to pass. As if he doesn't know the future. Yahweh knows exactly what the men of Nineveh will do. In fact, unless repentance had been granted to Nineveh, unless deaf ears had been opened in Nineveh and blind eyes had been opened in Nineveh, it would have been impossible to respond this way to his word that does not return void. Yahweh often waits for us to pray or act before he does certain things. Have you ever noticed that? Yahweh often waits for us to pray or act before he does certain things. You can pray for a baby all day long, but you are no Mary and Joseph. Yahweh waits for us to pray and to act before he does certain things, often, but he does not ever wait for us to pray or to act in order to determine what he will do. He does not wait for us to pray or act in order to determine what he will do. It's not like that at all. If that were the case, God would not be God. You would be God. I would be God. Dimas, the people, would be God. We want to believe that. We want to believe that we are God, but we are not God. Rather, Yahweh speaks prophetically and his word accomplishes his purpose. This can cause some to question the the compatibility of human responsibility and divine sovereignty, Yahweh's sovereignty or his godness, his omniscience, that he knows everything, his omnipotence, that he is all-powerful, his immutability, that he never changes, he doesn't learn, he is unchanging. And it could cause us to question the compatibility of those. One Once Charles Spurgeon was asked if he could reconcile these two, divine sovereignty and human responsibility, and this is how he astutely responded. He said this, I wouldn't even try. I never reconcile friends. 
In other words, he's saying there is no contradict. There's nothing that needs reconciliation. There's no contradiction. There is no schism that needs reconciling because there is no divide here that needs to be overcome. Yahweh's sovereignty and human responsibility go hand in hand as friends. Now, to understand this is much more simple than many make it out to be. And this is it, it in a sentence. Yahweh sovereignly determines the end and he sovereignly determines the means to those ends, to that end. He sovereignly determines the end and he sovereignly determines the means to the end. Now, put another way, we can say this. God doesn't just determine how the story ends. He has written every detail of every plot line, of every character that leads to his determined end. Some of those means that he has determined are the free choices of his creatures, or, or better, the uncoerced choices of his creatures. And so what is the nature of these free choices or these uncoerced choices? Our choices are as free as the characters on the page are free to make their choices. They're as free as the clay is on the potter's wheel to be whatever the potter makes that lump to be, whatever he determines it to be. Our choices are uncoerced. They must not be, that is true. And we must not understand that as our choices are um, made autonomously apart from an author. In other words, you're not writing your own story. You are not the captain of your own fate. You are not the captain of your destiny. God is the author. He is the creator and we are not. We are not. When did you choose to get here? You say about 10, 10, 15. No, no, no. When did you choose to get here on this place, on planet Earth? You didn't choose your time. You didn't choose your country. You didn't choose your parents or your grandparents. And neither did I. Yahweh has determined He is determined to use our uncoerced choices for his determined end. Some of those means are those choices, and our choices are truly uncoerced. Our free choices must not be understood as the ultimate source of determination. They must not be understood as the ultimate source of determination. God alone has determined whatsoever comes to pass. So when the pronouncement goes against Nineveh, yet 40 days, and they pray for mercy, that's good and right and legitimate because they don't know what is going to come in 40 days. But Yahweh knows. God alone has determined whatsoever comes to pass. He is the 
author of history. Listen to Proverbs 16.1. The preparations of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Proverbs 16.9. A man's heart plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. Proverbs 16.33. The lot is cast into the lap or on the deck of the boat, but it's every decision is from the Lord. There are Proverbs 19, 21, there are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel that will stand. Matthew 10, 30 teaches us that even the very hairs of our head are numbered by our heavenly father. We cannot, we cannot bring the transcendent creator down as if he were bound by the same constraints that we are bound by. Doesn't it hurt your head to think about how all of that works together? We cannot bring the transcendent creator down to this level of um, being bound by creation. Remember, uh, we talked about it in Sunday school, the example of the baby in the womb that we, were, we, we had a discussion last night um, at Sabbath dinner. And the baby in the womb, you can talk to that baby about what those lungs are for but they can't fully comprehend it until it's experienced we can't bring God down to our level to our level of understanding to our level of wisdom and try and make this work it won't work that way it won't work that way And at the same time, we must keep our place as creatures. We we are the characters in his story. And so we cannot assume the role of author, co-author, editor. Yahweh has determined to use our prayers, our repentance, our response to prophecy, and all of our free or uncoerced Choices as means to his determined ends. And there is simply no way for us, listen, there is simply no way for us to possibly influence or coerce or manipulate Yahweh to act contrary to his immutable nature. There is no way for us to influence or coerce or manipulate God to act contrary to his determined plan will not happen. It may look like it's happening when Jesus is going to the cross, but it will not happen. It cannot happen. It may look that way when you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, but trust your father. It will not Happen. There is nothing that can thwart his good plan and purpose. Down to the particulars, how does it work? It will hurt your brains to try and figure it out. How it all works together. He is the author. His ways are higher than ours. We are on the canvas of creation. And he, he holds the brush. Down here, it often remains a mystery. Often remains a mystery. And, but here's the good news. 
thankfully, we do not have to be able to answer how in order to believe. We do not have to um, be able to answer how in order to trust and obey. We do not understand in order to believe. We do not understand in order to believe. We believe so that way we, so that way, sorry, we believe so that we, crede ut intelligas, credo ut intelligas, believe so that you may understand. I believe so that I may understand. This is what we say every morning in, in our school. We do not understand in order to believe. We believe in order to understand. God is sovereign, we, and we can fully affirm this, and we can fully latch on to this and not let go of it without having to understand it. God is fully sovereign, and we are fully responsible for our words and our actions, our choices. When Yahweh saw how Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah, he turned from the disaster he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. When, when God saw how Nineveh turned, God turned from the disaster that he said he would do, and he, would, and he did not do it. And chapter 3 is where we see the often overlooked aspect of the sign of the prophet Jonah that Jesus talked about. The sign of the prophet Jonah that Jesus talked about is not just that death, the man would die and be resurrected again three days later. It's that the dead man who was dead for three days and will be resurrected three days later will come back and take the good news to the world. Will take the gospel to all nations. We may wonder how we can call yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown good news. And that's because we have grown dull and complacent and apathetic. We are fat and sassy here in America. And we are dull of hearing. And we think, how can that be good news? We are apathetic to the message because we are apathetic to the one who sends the message. Not Jonah, Yahweh. Nineveh knew when Jonah came at Yahweh's call to them, to call out against them. Nineveh turned not to Jonah, they turned to Yahweh. Yahweh's covenant from the beginning has always included conditional blessings and curses. Adam in the garden, here's everything. Don't eat from that tree or you will die. Condition. The covenant of God from beginning to, to the new covenant now always includes conditions, blessings, and curses. And these are all firmly in accordance with his eternal will and decrees. And the Father uses these conditions, these blessings, and these curses to grow his people. He used this blessing and these curses, these conditions, to grow the people of God. The sailors on the boat added to God's covenant people. He grew them. But you know what else he grew, how else he grew his people? He grew Israel up as he took them through captivity. He took them to Babylon. 
He took them. He purged them. And he sent them back better. He grew them. The Father uses these conditions to grow his people into a pure and a spotless bride. He uses conditions to grow his people to see all the beautiful aspects of who he is as holy and righteous and just and merciful and gracious and long-suffering. The fact that the word was sent by Yahweh to them was a grace in and of itself. It was a grace in and of itself. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. The fact that Yahweh had come to them with a word was a grace. And you know what they did with that? They consumed it. Day one. And Jesus hearkened back to that generation. It says this generation repented at the preaching of Jonah. And one greater than Jonah is here and you reject him. They will rise up and judge you. Yahweh sent the word to them and that was a grace in and of itself. But it was not just that. The message was a grace that this violent, upside down city would be turned over. Was good. It was good news to everyone, including that king. Everyone. It was good news to everyone who had been given eyes to see and ears to hear. And Nineveh had received those eyes right on cue, didn't they? And though it displeased Jonah exceedingly, is what we read in the very next verse of chapter 4. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. Angry, Yahweh relented from the disaster and gave them mercy. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. As we prepare to come to the table, this table of the Lord, this table of mercy and grace, Jesus Christ submitted to the will of the Father, not only becoming a man with a body, but by giving his body to be broken to satisfy the wrath of his Father for his people. Listen to that. Jesus Christ gave his body to be broken to satisfy the wrath of his Father for his people. For you and for me, Jesus Christ was not a rebel like Jonah. Jesus Christ was not a rebel like Jonah, but he obediently walked that rebel's path. Down to the pit. Down to Sheol. Just like Jonah. But Jesus didn't stay down. Yahweh, his God, called him up again, the word incarnate, to take away our sin. And as we come to this table, as his body... We remember and we proclaim. We remember what he has done for us and we proclaim his death until he comes again. So church, come 
and welcome to Jesus Christ. Come. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Please stand and receive your charge. Here is your charge. Uncover the light. Proclaim boldly Yahweh's proclamation. Go to the highways and the hedges and compel the lost to come in, that the king's house may be filled. You have been commissioned like Jonah. And as many times as you have rebelled and denied and failed and run and shrink back, his grace is more relentless than your failure. His grace is more relentless than your fears, than your faithlessness. He is more persistent than your denials. Thanks be to God. He is more overwhelming than your sinful, emotional insanity. He is more overwhelming than your sinful, emotional insanity. Trust Him. Obey Him. Go filled with the mercy and compassion of a redeemed rebel and proclaim boldly the good news today. Amen? Amen.